0: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum... Distance learning is posing a unique set of challenges for families with learners in preschool and the early grades. You can find anecdotes both funny and sad on social media of little ones trying to navigate Zoom classes. But while some parents muddle through, others have decided to forego school altogether, with enrollment declines being reported at the preschool and kindergarten levels. In this hour, we'll talk with experts about the best way to help California's youngest students. And we want to hear from you. What's your experience been like with little ones doing remote learning? Tell us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Distance learning is challenging for students of any age, but especially for the youngest students starting school for the first time. Children in preschool or the early elementary grades tend to learn best through play or interacting with teachers and other kids, basically things that are hard to replicate over a computer screen. Some parents have opted out of preschool or kindergarten altogether, while others try to make distance learning work. We'll hear about the best ways to support families with young students as the state cuts investments in pre-K and grapples with educational inequities made worse by the pandemic. Joining me is Gloria Corral. She's president and CEO of Parent Institute for Quality Education. Thanks for joining us, Gloria Corral.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Also with us is Suzanne Buffard. She's author of The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten and the Future of Our Children. Thanks for joining us, Suzanne Bufard.
2: Thank you, I'm happy to be
0: here. Also with us is Carla Bryant, Executive Director of the Center for District Innovation and Leadership in Early Education and former Chief of Early Education at San Francisco Unified School District. Thanks for joining us, Carla Bryant. Thank you. And I'd like to start with you, Carla, if I could. I mean, we hear that kids, especially pre-K through the early grades, tend to do best with in-person instruction. Remind us why that is.
3: Um, absolutely, they do best with instruction, um, uh, in-person instruct, uh, in, in instruction. Uh, they're younger. They're looking for cues from the adults. We are literally uh, teaching them in the moment. Um, we can look back at a lot of our philosophers or a lot of our instructors around how children, the adult-to-adult interactions and the adult to child builds on their understanding of what they're doing or what they need to know. Um, I, I, I have so many things that occur when we are sitting next to children and we're helping them to problem solve. We're helping them to understand the, the small nuances. And when you're online, those kinds of things are hard to replicate because we are literally just trying to figure out the children are literally trying to figure out who you are um uh, versus when they can learn that when they're in person
0: i mean yes go ahead please keep going sorry i thought you were done
3: um and, and and then when we think about the the way we set up our classrooms to actually help uh children with the instruction we have a variety of materials because each child will uh, gravitate to different types of things. And the adult is there to actually facilitate that process uh, so they can see what are the things that are interesting to the child so we can build on that Mm -hmm. interest. When you're online, you don't have the same, you have to work harder or think through how do I ensure that I can have a variety of materials to meet the different needs of each individual child that are coming to us from different uh, family homes where they've, been, where they've been exposed to different things. So again, when I think about how do I do that with 20, at the beginning of a year, with how, if you have 16 to 20 new children online, I'm trying to learn who they are as individuals, I'm trying to learn who are they going to be with other children as they're interacting, and do that in such a way that I'm respectful of the families and their structure and the child and their need. That in-person process um, it's very hard to replicate when you're on, when you're doing it online. And this is something they 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 they, they this is how they learn. They learn from those inter, those interactions.
0: Suzanne Buffard. I mean, what I'm really hearing Carla Bryant describe is just the importance of actively engaging uh, with an environment that's rich in in manipulatives, (laughs) peers, things like that, which I guess could explain why kids, even though they seem to be able to, say, sit in front of a device uh, for a learning show or a YouTube video for a good
2: half hour or more, seem to have a really hard time staying engaged in a live online lesson. Young kids are developing in so many different ways at the same time, including physically, emotionally, socially, cognitively. And that's part of the reason that it's so important for them to learn in an active way. It's why they need to move, it's why they need to touch things. And I think the most important thing for us to understand with remote learning and young kids is that we need to create ways for them to touch and to be physical and to move within the environment that they're in. And it is true that this is a really challenging situation that really none of us would like to find ourselves in, and we're all learning how to navigate it. But the good news is that there are things that teachers can encourage families to do with their kids at home where you can have kids walk away from the screen for five minutes to go do a counting collection of something in their house, whether it's beans in the kitchen or pennies or something like that. So I'm really hoping to see teachers and families find ways to use the technology as a communication tool that then encourages people to do these relationship-based things and hands-on things that we know young kids need.
0: And we're certainly hearing from parents that they could use the support. I mean, Michelle writes, It's hard feeling like my kids are depending on me for everything. Of course, as toddlers, they do. But once they start school, at least they can learn from their peers and teachers, and they can develop play skills and friendships with other kids. With home being home and school, I feel responsible for ensuring they develop the play skills and friendship piece, too. And it's exhausting having to be there everything. And this is, I mean, one of the reasons that we've heard, Gloria Corral, that some parents have sort of opted out of their kids doing online learning related either to preschool or kindergarten. I mean, LA Unified said that they were down some 6,000 kindergartners when, I guess, typically the drop in enrollments is about 2,000 or so, so students because of, you know, general things like kids moving out of the district and affordable housing issues and a declining birth rate. But, I mean... What are you hearing in terms of the kinds of struggles that parents are facing related to online learning?
1: Well, I think there are, there are several, and I would say that uh, they're really anchored on sort of some structural issues. So obviously just be getting online uh, for fa- some families are just, it's just harder. There, we've all known the digital divide has existed long before the pandemic. The pandemic only exacerbated those inequities, and so there are some real logistical issues that really um, hinder a family's ability to join online. That's happening in, in in younger children, but also obviously in the in the elementary grades. Um, and so, you know, access to technology, access to connectivity, and importantly, um, Kim, I think one of the things we need to really talk about is the adult's ability to navigate an online platform, an online world. So the digital skills necessary to make that a successful intervention and a successful forum for them to to engage. And so what we're hearing from families really is that there are su- there is substantial barriers just on the access piece. And it's inequitably, uh, uh, you know, people are accessing this um, technology, uh, because of these inequities in different ways mm. Then the other is um, just fundamentally, what does it mean to have a, a, a five-year-old uh, log on if you yourself don't know what that means, right? And how do you then support that? But importantly, it's also what does that mean in relationship? And I think Suzanne talked about this, to who else it might be in, in that home environment. Um, and so, you know, when, when families are having to make difficult choices about, you know, Basic needs, housing, food, um, health, um, and 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 life choices about um, how best to support and care for their children. We have to put it in the context holistically of what that family is experiencing. And so, on the one hand, there's logistics, and then on the other, it's just understanding that the stress and the stressors of learning a new uh, way of interacting when you don't have the skills um, and knowledge. Um, can really add an an additional level of stress um, to a to a family and to a to a home environment that is actually not supportive of a child's overall development, um, and that really impacts their social emotional development and their ability to then successfully because that's what we want. We want children to feel capable, competent, to fail and re- and try again, right? To do these things that. Uh, develop these um, social emotional skills around p- perseverance and um, an ability to to try new things and and experiment. And so, um, so I think there are these real issues that families are grappling with.
0: And um, Gloria, I mean, you at the Parent Institute for Quality Education work with a lot of families who are essential workers or non English speakers. And I wonder, I mean, if they are not working from home, how are they making online? Learning work for little kids.
1: They they, they aren't, by, but largely because of uh, these issues that I that I that I mentioned, and also meaning the the digital divide, not act, not having stable, <laughs> constant and stable internet that some of us uh, take for granted. Right They're, they they really are struggling with that because as essential workers, as as families that are in multi generational households. Or sharing um, limited space with others, these are tr- these are real challenges and barriers that parents are telling us they are living through. You know, they might be sharing a, a living environment with another family. There may be, you know, six, eight children, um, two families. So, so really, for them, the the choice is about surviving and making sure they, they are healthy, but also importantly is how do they navigate when they have multiple children at home um, and supporting their overall well-being? And so what we're hearing from parents is that it's it's really challenging to do that. However, and I want to really emphasize this, however, when families are supported to develop their digital literacy skills, mm-hmm. like learn how to navigate the resources, every parent wants what you know, what I want for my child, what other people want for their children. It's just they need the skills and the supports to develop those so they can help their children
0: succeed. Well, we'll learn more about ways to support families after the break. We're talking about the challenges of distance learning for students in preschool to second grade with Gloria Corral, president and CEO of Parent Institute for Quality Education, Suzanne Buffard, author of The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten and the Future of Our Children, and Carla Bryant, executive director of the Center for District Innovation and Leadership in Early Education. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim. you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the challenges of distance learning for students in preschool to second grade with Gloria Corral, President and CEO of Parent Institute for Quality Education, also the parent of a seven and a nine-year-old. Suzanne Buffard, mom of a six and ten-year-old who are doing remote learning. She's author of The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten and the Future of Our Children. And Carla Bryan, parent of a third grader, Executive Director of the Center for District Innovation and Leadership in Early Education. And you, our listeners, are with us. How are you dealing with remote schooling? What is working? What isn't? Did you decide to forego school, preschool or kindergarten instead of going online or doing in-person learning? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions or comments to Forum at kqed.org. I'm joined now by parent Courtney Miller, whose son just turned five years old and is in kindergarten in the Vallejo Unified School District. Thanks so much for joining us, Courtney Miller. Yes, thank you for having me. So we're a few weeks in. What's been your and your son's experience with distance learning so far? So
4: it's been kind of crazy. I mean, I think... um, it still kind of causes some anxiety for me. Um, it is a couple weeks in, and you know, I would have hoped by now we would have had kind of a better daily routine. Um, you know, for a parent of a five-year-old, routine is really important for us, and things have kind of continued to change. His class started with eight kids. Um, and then it went to 20 kids a couple uh, couple weeks later, and wow. now it's in three cohorts of transitional kindergarten, kindergarten, and ESL kids. Um, It initially started with 9 a.m. to 11 and now it's 9 to 1215. And it's just a lot of things that have changed. And so I feel like it's still kind of lacking that structure for us to get really comfortable with it. Um, So it's kind of been a challenge for us.
0: Yes. And you're working from home while you're also trying to basically go to school with your son, (laughs)
4: Yes. Yeah, that's been a lot, too. I um, have to log on myself for um, Zoom meetings at 9 a.m., which is the exact start time of his school. (laughs) So um, it's been difficult to juggle that. Um, But I am comforted by the fact that I think my job and the teacher understands that this is a very, you know, complicated situation for a lot of people. And so there is some kind of um, you know, support in that folks kind of understand if you're logging on a little later, like, hey, you know, I've got to get my kid onto to class. And so it's it's worked out, but but it's still hard. And I think about the parents who aren't home and aren't able to do that with their kids all the time and how they're kind of getting through this.
0: Yes. And how are you getting, I know you mentioned you're getting some support, but are you getting enough support from the school, especially since it sounds like the schedule has changed a lot? And, you know, they do try to provide supplemental materials, but do they do that in a way that's parent friendly?
3: Well,
4: I think they're figuring it out just kind of as we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been very open to communication. You know, they're they're available through the Parent Score app that they use and email. But it's still been a little difficult to um, get a hold of people. When I first started trying to contact the principal and getting my son a touchscreen laptop, it took me about four or five days to really make that happen. Um, and that was a little frustrating. Um, but we've just kind of been trying to make it work.
0: And usually, you know, basically, In-class learning is about two hours or so a day. I don't know how long it is for you, but do you find that you're trying to supplement his schooling the rest of the time?
4: Well, we, yeah, we are. What's hard is that the class doesn't start until nine um, and he wakes up, you know, a little early. And so for that first kind of hour when he's up, we've tried to make sure that he's kind of getting into a school zone, you know, and it's hard for him to transition, you know, so when kids are in a kind of playing mode, they want to keep playing. So if he wakes up and he's playing with Legos and doing this, it's kind of hard to transition him to say, okay, now you have to sit in front of this laptop for two hours. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of tried to, you know, get workbooks and and do little things where he can sit there or color where he's at his desk. So he can kind of be in that mode. Um, But, you know, he's missing out on recess and he's missing out on these, you know, physical interactions with other kids. Um, And his energy level is so high. So um, it's been it's been difficult to try to figure out the best way to supplement everything. Um, And we've been just trying to look at, you know, things online and and other resources. But um, it's been hard.
0: Well, Courtney Miller, thanks so much for sharing your experience. Appreciate it.
4: You're welcome.
0: And, you know, Carla Bryan, just your reaction to what you're hearing from Courtney Miller. I mean, right now, teachers really are depending on families to make sure that their kids are participating and able to do the work that they need to be doing. And in terms of the partnership that they're trying to create right now, it sounds like, as Courtney was saying, they're sort of doing it as they go. Oh, yes,
3: and I have to, um, I'm so appreciative of the parents sharing her experience. Um, what she affirms is that, one, she's, she's willing, willing and she's partnering with the school district to actually come up with a solution. And I will say that I have been working with uh, seven to eight school districts who have come together and have really thought about exactly what her experience is. How can we actually provide parents and partner with parents in such a way that the experience during this time can be a lot better than what it was possibly in the spring. And so our group came up with a group of two papers. One was a set of materials or recommendations around how to help parents work with parents to set up an environment that works much better for them in the home. And it was starting with some basics making sure that families had hands, hands-on materials, actual materials in the home provided by the school district. The second was a whole conversation with the parents around what are the appropriate devices that children should actually have based on their age and their developmental level. Uh, Chromebooks were, as everyone knows, was what was being going out, what went out to a lot of the older students but Chromebooks are not necessarily developmentally appropriate for children who are four, five, six, and seven years of age. So hearing the parent talk about the use of touchscreens was amazing. And we've also talked about having tablets and possibly using a smartphone. And that actually addresses the issue that Gloria talked about, about access. Hmm. Um, most families have smartphones and That is a good way for uh, schools to actually start to talk to their parents about how to communicate. And then the third recommendation we came up with is that you absolutely have to have a process to support the families. And that process must include an entire discussion around device usage. One, how do you actually log on? How do you... um, access the different types of activities. And then the other part is just a conversation about what is appropriate. Is it okay for a five-year-old to be online for 30 minutes? Um, How do you break it up? Um, Even if you have them do it for five or 10 minutes and then come back to it. We discuss the issues of fatigue. Um, Even adults are dealing with the issue of online fatigue. Um, And then from there, we added two more things that again, that the parent uh, talked about was, we're now asking families to literally create school environments in their home. What are the things that schools consider when they're setting up those environments? And how do we make those adjustments based on the needs of the family? Gloria talked about Uh, families having the space, having um, other children in the house. So we strongly encourage our teachers and our schools to have discussions with families about what are their realities and then how do we ahead of time help them, help us make adjustments so they can, we can actually make sure they have what they need. So an example, um, that was provided by us from an or from a district in San Francisco Unified around how they helped families cre- uh, find uh, get bins, create space in their home that actually did not impact other uh, parts of the home, where they could put the bins under a bed or under a table and then pull them out during learning time. Um, and there are so many other things that yes. uh, districts are coming with, coming up with with ideas of how to support families.
0: Well, the other thing too, Gloria Corral, just give us a sense of what it takes for your organization, PK, the Parent Institute for Quality Education, to help families get set up on technology. I mean, it sounded like it was conversations that could sometimes last hours to just try to make sure everything was ready to go.
1: Absolutely, uh, Nina, and I think this is really um, speaking to th- kind of a framework or a partnership that that Carla alluded to, because we all know that uh, parents are their child's first and most important teachers, so we want parents and family members to feel empowered, right? We want them to feel competent and, and able to support their children's learning. And so um, over the last uh, five months, we've been working specifically with families that are um, non-native English speakers who who have low literacy skills. And really, Nina, the magic here is talking to another person in a language and in a way that they understand. And so we've been uh, making, we've made over 20,000 phone calls to families across the state. Um, and really, these are three to five phone calls that happen. They take upwards of total 45 minutes to an hour an hour and 15 but it's because our first question nina isn't what you know get on your zoom meeting it's how are you how are you feeling what's going on right because we need to meet families where they are and then ask what device do you have do you have internet right and so you really walk families through the process of look at what you have oftentimes most of the families have um uh, an old Android phone. Those, that's that's our what our data show. That's three three years old or more. And so we say, okay, what can we use? Do that, uh, and how do we use it effectively? And then over the course of these conversations, helping them download an app, and then they begin to see themselves not just as, you know, importantly, not just as as viable and competent. Uh, users of the of the equipment that they have, but importantly, now they are seeing how to access these resources that they need for themselves and their families, um, in a way that is successful, right? So that they don't have to navigate seven different links. We send them a link with a list of consolidated resources that addresses their needs holistically issues or questions about housing, about food, about education, right, so that they go to one place that they can then tap into the various resources that they need because, you know, we have to acknowledge families are experiencing this crisis holistically, right? Right. We can't just think about their educational needs of the child. The child is going to absorb the stress. Of food and security, of housing and security, right? And that mental health, that social emotional well being of the adult will impact that child's ability to be curious, to feel like they're safe, to know that they have a, a, a safe place to go. And so those things are really important to us. And our data show that that is doing this from a, a person to person in a language that families understand, recognizing that this is an asset right, that they bring, um, those are the ways in which families successfully learn to navigate this online platform.
0: I see. Well, let me go to caller Robert in Oakland. Hi, Robert. Join us.
5: Hi. Um, I have a six-year-old daughter who's in first grade, and since the start of this year, that you know her school has sort of gotten on with a good program for the online learning. But my only concern is that you know, she's spending three or four hours on, online, and the only way I can kind of make peace with this is just to think, well, the, the pandemic's going to be over eventually, and we'll go back to the normal, the normal school. Um, yeah. The problem, I feel, <laughs> is that at this age, she's getting sort of ingrained into the whole computer use. And so that's that's a real concern of mine that um but I don't really know any other way around it other than eventually we're gonna be you know out of the pandemic, hopefully.
0: Robert, thanks for sharing that. Let me see if I can get a reaction from Suzanne Buffard. I mean he's not alone also in just kind of trying to get through this, right? And and hoping that it will end soon. <laughs> And so what are your thoughts and reactions to his concerns? Uh, And then we can talk more about whether going back is the right decision.
2: I think we're all struggling with that in some ways because we've been told for a long time to make sure that our young children aren't spending too much time on screens. But one thing that I find really reassuring is that the experts on screen time and children have really started to move away from the idea of a set number of hours to a framework that they call the three Cs which is um, to pay attention to your child and their particular needs, the content of what they're doing on the screen, and the context, meaning are they doing it in interaction and in a relationship with a supportive adult, whether it's you or a teacher. So we're moving towards a much clearer understanding that what you do on screens and with whom actually matters more than the amount of time that you're spending. So for example, when FaceTime and Skype and those kinds of tools became more popular and kids started spending time with their grandparents online, we started to recognize as researchers and as developmental psychologists that that's not bad for kids, that's great. It actually means that kids are getting more of the kinds of positive interactions that we want them to have. And so as we try to get through this difficult time using screens more than we want to, The most important thing is to make sure that we're spending that time well. So you can do that in collaboration with your child's teachers. And then also try to make sure that the time that your child is spending on screens outside of school time is meaningful. It doesn't always have to be interacting with another person, but, you know, it could be some kind of a game that they're playing that is creative where they're constructing things as opposed to zoning out.
0: Well, let me read a few comments from our listeners, Suzanne Bufar. This listener writes, some days it's a real blank show, (laughs) and other (laughs) days it goes fine. What's concerning me is this feeling that we're just getting through the work to get through it. I want my kids to actually enjoy learning, not just get through it. The challenge this year is whether the kids are truly learning the content. Rosina writes, I have a son in kindergarten, and it's such an overwhelming thing to live through for all of us. My husband is in between jobs, and even though I want him to find work, I don't see how to do this without a parent helping my son. They need guidance, not sure how to do better, just hoping for this to end sooner rather than later. So a couple of things, right? First, we hear that it's really important not to stress out your kid or be super stressed out in front of them, because that can just be associated with their learning, correct? But then the question I have is, based on all the different ways that you know teachers, school districts, and parents are learning in real time what online learning means—is it better than opting out for a while?
2: <laughs> Wondering how people no make right that yeah Whether it's better to be doing remote learning or to opt out or to do hybrid learning. I think it's very individual to a family's and a child's circumstances, but I completely sympathize with everyone feeling that they're overwhelmed and exhausted and trying to meet all of their children's needs. I would say the first thing to remember is that the most important thing for kids learning is to have positive and stable and loving relationships with their families and ideally with a few people outside of their families, like a teacher and some peers. Right now, of course, we are really leaning on our families and our close connections more than ever. And that's not something that we hope is the case long-term, but in the short-term, that really is what matters for your child's development. Second of all, it's important to remember that
0: We're coming up on a break, so if you could just hold that thought, uh, Suzanne Bufard. We'll have more on distance learning, how to navigate it, and how to prepare for hybrid education, which more districts are starting to look into. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about... uh, Learning with kindergartners, preschoolers, the early grades, and ways to do online learning in in ways that support families best. Young kids learn through play and social interaction with teachers and other kids, which is hard to replicate with distance learning. So, we're talking about ways to support families in this critical time for kids when they're laying the groundwork for their academic careers. We're joined by Gloria Corral, President and CEO of Parent Institute for Quality Education, Carla Bryant, Head of the Center for District Innovation and Leadership in Early Education, and Suzanne Buffard. Author of The Most Important Year, Pre-Kindergarten and the Future of Our Children. And you are our listeners, 866 733 6786 is the number to call, the email address, forum at KQED.org. And we're of course on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. And just before the break, Suzanne Buffard, you were about to tell us another thing that parents should be thinking about as they're weighing, you know, how to do how to do online learning best and whether or not to do it.
2: Right. One of the most important things for young children's learning is for them to be curious and excited about learning. And that may not be happening in the online space. It may be happening in the conversations that you have with them later or before school. It may be happening in the reading that you do with them. So all those little everyday ways that we interact with them and help them be curious about the world, whether it's about how many steps you have outside your house or whether it's about how the can opener works in the kitchen, those kinds of things are the, are the things that make kids ready to be learners for a long period of time. So I would say focus more on those interactions. If you get kicked out of a Zoom call, if you can't log in, if your child is just having a day when they have to turn off the camera, that's okay. The main thing is that we want them to feel positively about school and attached to learning. And so it's okay if you don't get every single read aloud in on the Zoom conversations.
0: Well, let me just ask you this, Suzanne Bouffard, because I know you did some reporting on it, but our districts, as they're starting to gauge parents' interests on whether or not they should, they would like to do a hybrid model, meaning kids would go back to school for parts of a day or a couple days a week. I mean, what do you recommend based on what you've found in your reporting? Are schools able to create a safe hybrid model, a, a you know, physically a healthy hybrid model um, that mitigates the risk of contracting COVID-19 and also doesn't create a traumatic experience for them when they go back into the school environment and it's so different than what maybe they knew before.
2: Right, it varies a lot across districts and across cities. I talked this summer to some people who had been working in emergency child care centers for children of essential workers. And what they told me was that young kids were a lot more flexible than grown-ups are and that they were actually doing really well with things like wearing masks and washing their hands. In some ways, very young children, that those are the kinds of things that early childhood centers are, have always been really good at. Um, that being said, you're never going to keep young children fully apart from each other. And the last thing that we want is to make them panicked about relationships with other people you know the last thing that we want is for a teacher to scream oh my god don't hug me so there's a real delicate balance i think of making an early childhood classroom physically safe and emotionally safe and i think that's something that we're all really grappling with both as educators and as parents figuring out what's the best situation for our own kids
0: well let me go to dale in san leandro hi dale join us
2: hi um I
6: have been a director of a parent cooperative preschool for over 25 years. I retired right before this all happened, so I have been um, volunteering my ideas, my time, my online, my experience to uh, help our new directors get through this. And uh, I also have the pleasure of homeschooling my uh, grandchildren who live Hmm. in Brazil so um I've collected a, a little cohort of Brazilians that I um <laughs> am teaching online. But um the landscape of parent co ops can teach us a lot, I think, about um about supporting parents during this time first of all community support going out and getting your local churches your local uh, organizations to help support those who don't have the money perhaps to pay for supplies we give out a box once a month to all 60 families of the supplies they'll need that month and that's part of their tuition but for parents who can't afford that We are running to our local community. Invest in these children. They're your future. And uh, supporting the parents then to have those uh, particular items that they might need. Um, And also parent education. If you don't have the luxury of somebody who can spend 45 minutes with four phone calls a day, buddy up, buddy the parents up and buddy them up in such a way that you get same language speakers to be able to help each other. There's so much to be said for that kind of support because then they often create lifelong support systems that will carry them long after this is over. Um, it'll give them device support. They can help each other. Uh, and then another essential piece is to send home either reading or or a little video for the parent, not the child, to explain why we do what we do, how do they know, they don't know brain development, and yet we're asking them to do activities that may seem a little odd to them. We don't have them memorize ABCs. We have them draw the letters on a salt tray, because we know that the input through sensory is what's wiring the brain. Well, they don't know that.
5: Mm. And so
6: we need to teach the parent, why are we doing the, the odd things that we do with young children, and why it's so much more important than an academic approach. And then another thing, teach them how to play. Um, If you're not socializing, take a little car and the child has a car and act out a scenario that you might want them to learn about social emotional growth. So it's really about the parent i think
0: well, Dale, be yes i'm thank you so much i i love what you're saying and what it's making me think about carla bryant is i mean things like explaining to the teachers why teachers or explain to the parents why teachers are doing what they're doing or what they're trying to achieve what the goal is feels like kind of a reimagining of the teacher parent relationship a little bit and and maybe that's something we can learn from this um,
3: I, I totally agree and, and thank thank you Dale uh, Dale has some amazing ideas there yeah great that ideas. I absolutely believe that I I know that I see uh, school districts implementing um, I think this is this horrible time that we're dealing with is actually an opportunity to absolutely not only reimagine what parent engagement is but to do what we always said that we want to do when it comes to do with parents, which is partner with them. And that the idea of literally working together in two ways, one, where we're talking to parents about the developmental stages uh, that their children are going through and why we're using materials. Dale is absolutely right. But there is something else happening here, which is where parents now have an opportunity to talk to the professional about their cultural expectations and where we can build on not only what is developmental appropriate, but layer it with the cultural aspects that are going on in the home and build something even better for the, parent, for the child. Um, this is an opportunity for us to look at just why are we doing certain things and have they brought value to children and can we bring even more value to it? Uh, I look, I'm thinking of parents who are working, who have children, who have extra needs. I say to them, reach out to the school and say, and ask them three questions. What is your assessment process? So I can understand it. And it also teaches me what are the things that my children should be gaining so I can make sure that I'm looking for them with the teacher. And the second one is how do I communicate with you when I see things, when I want to modify things? Because if you're expecting my child to be online, let's say two hours, and I'm figuring out that it's not working, how do I communicate to say that it's not working and the reasons why and how can we work this out? And then this is an opportunity for the parents to really talk to the uh, teacher about their child's strengths. Because this child is not sitting in a school setting where that teacher can learn and see daily how this child learns and what is best for them. This is the chance for the parent to be that communicator. And they can go back and forth with how to build on that child's current things and add those actual value things that are not only around what the school sees that's important, but also what the parent sees that is important.
0: I think you're addressing this listener's question with that answer. Matthew writes, I consulted for a firm that provides telehealth support for families with kids on the autism spectrum. We found that many parents are ill prepared to step up as active facilitators of learning. What have you found can help parents beyond the technical access issues? And it sounds like these kinds of conversations, Carla Bryant, with teachers are really a key strategy to try to help parents behind beyond just, you know, helping them deal with Zoom. This listener writes, we've been extremely lucky. My kindergartner goes to an outdoor forest school, which pivoted to smaller cohorts with COVID. The fires have been a problem since they can't have class outside in the smoke, but it's been great for dealing with the virus. This listener writes, I'm an essential worker and sole provider for my family. We loved in-person preschool last year, but sadly have had to totally write off this year's school experience for my son. My husband is not computer literate and unable to assist with any online learning for our four-year-old. In any case, it's hard to keep him engaged for online learning. Let me go to Susan in Sunnyvale. Hi, Susan, join us. Oh, I think we just might have lost Susan there. Let me go next to Chris in Oakland. Hi, Chris. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure.
7: So um, let's see very quickly, i'm I'm a very privileged person, I believe. i'm I'm the mother and grandmother um, of some East Bay uh, wonderful people. Two of my, my, both of my sons are teachers and are working in this remote environment. Um one uh who's actually uh, the a uh, last year teacher of the year, fabulous teacher. Um the other one who is working in a very low income Hispanic neighborhood in Oakland um doing remote learning and I'm so deeply proud of both of them and um uh, I'll talk a little bit in a sec about the teachers, but also as a grandparent of a special needs third year old and a TK um uh uh child uh who we've been doing the remote remote um, uh, uh, learning with because my sons have to teach. Um, and I'm, I guess what a, a couple of things I just want to say is number one, teachers need to be so loved and supported right now. They are um, the best of them are, are struggling with this. It is getting better. It is getting better, I think for everyone, but the best of them are the hours, the hours the stress it's it's what I see in both of my sons is 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 heartbreaking sometimes, mm. um but it is getting better um secondly, just as someone who is the remote parent in lieu of the parents uh, and and again, we are so privileged, we have two sets of educated grandparents who are retired, who are there and can, can can do this with kids. My heart also breaks for people in the community. And I know from my sons that a lot of their students have no one at home with them. And this is just, it's, 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 it's horrifying. Um, so I, I, I guess I just wanted to first of all, thank the panel. Thank all the callers for calling in with these wonderful suggestions Um make a plea for whatever we can do to engage the community more in, um, in remote support for those families out there who cannot be home with their children right now. I'm um, helping them
0: learn. Chris, thank you so much for saying that. And I do want to actually get to the kind of support that teachers have. But before I do, let me see if I can get one more caller Farhad in from Fremont. Hi, Farhad.
8: Hi, thank you, Nina, for having me. It's a great conversation going on. So we have two kids attending uh, online, uh, third grader and my second one is kindergarten. just started this year. What we observe with our kids' experience, it is rather difficult for them because uh, they are using tools that we use at university level, such as using uh, online homework, submitting uh, homework to the Google Drive or other developed apps such as Seesaw or Claver, which they need tremendous amount of help from us while we work from home too. Yes. I have to say that teachers are doing tremendous good job in helping these kids. And it is not easy for them, for the teachers too. I think the most important, what I think that we feel about our kids, that they are missing our socialization, group work, and hands-on work at school. But we are optimistic because all these are temporary and and at least they are safe from COVID-19 and it's a bliss for us.
0: Could I ask you, Farhad, really quickly, like if your school did open up, maybe for part-time classes, are you comfortable sending your kids with the numbers currently as they are?
8: To be honest, at this time, it is so difficult to, to send my kids to school. Here's why, because if they go in a closed Place, like such a class, it will be hard. But if they are in an open space, which they can be a little bit, you know, farther from each other, social, you know, distance socialization, you know, that would be a, a choice. But at least if it is safe, if the health officers of our county, Alameda County, they say that it is actually safe,
0: you would do time, it. It sounds like we Farhad, would do it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Let me read a couple more comments quickly. Uh, Pamela writes, it's horrible. My son is learning, but forget trying to get much work done. And meanwhile, he's so lonely. The whole situation is sad and really illustrates the gap between the poor and the rich who can afford for private school or one parent staying home or a learning center and writes, I think that the most important thing for young children is to have other children to play with. I've always thought there is far too much focus on structured learning for this age group. And think, and speaking of structured, Gloria Corral, I mean, could you just quickly give us uh, some of the tips that you give to parents to see the assets that they have in ways that they can in integrate learning into just daily routines?
1: Yes, and I think one of the things, especially for families that um, don't have English as their first language, the asset of being, uh, you know, having the experience of of their culture and sharing that with their with their children is so critical in multi-generational settings, having the older adult, whether that's a grandparent, as we've heard here today, um, talk about what history, oral history, they have sharing stories. Um, These are the kinds of things that make connection and bonding possible for children, and actually strengthen uh, their their language skills, right, literacy is developed through word use. And so asking questions, opening the questions like, what do you think happens next? Um, Who do you think I look like your mom or your dad, um, or, or just, you know, are, am I taller or shorter than you? All this happens um, really from a strength-based uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. So these are things families can do at home, um, asking them to help them sort their laundry. If they're going to the to the laundry um, uh, uh, mat, you know, counting the steps, seeing how many different, uh, you know, baskets they have. So it's really about how do you look at what you have Mm -hmm. and seeing it really from the child's perspective which is curious which is asset-based and most importantly i think especially for a lot of our families ensuring that they're able to talk read and sing to their children about what they know um, and in a language that really supports their home language development uh, because it is this connection suzanne mentioned it carla mentioned it is being connected and feeling safe as a young child is the foundation by which you acquire learning and meaning of the world.
0: Well, let me see if I can quickly in the last 20 seconds, Suzanne Buffard, if you could tell me if based on so far your research, you're seeing that teachers are getting the support that they need to keep kids engaged during remote learning, how to do that.
2: I agree with your listener who said that teachers are, are doing amazing things. Um, they need all of our support, <clears throat> both from families and also from district administration and educational organizations. Um, I think that people are getting some great tools and, and resources. That said, there's definitely a need for more. And there's also a need for all of us to remember to thank them and just give them a lot of patience and grace right now. <laughs> well,
0: whatever they're doing for this listener, Helen, a 10-year-old writes, I've loved online learning, especially math and science, and hope to continue online for as long as possible. So there you go. Uh, so Suzanne Buffard, author of The Most Important Year, Gloria Corral, Presidency of Parent Institute for Quality Education and Carla Bryant, head of the Center for District Innovation and Leadership in Early Education. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. And thanks to Blanca Torres for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Thanks for listening.
6: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.